Welcome to Regulate Tech. This is our 12th episode of 2022 with me, Niklas Berlumblad, and... With me, Richard Allen. So, uh, we thought this would be a craft episode, and one of the things that we've done historically is that we have singled out different other functions within large companies that you work together with. We've talked about PR, we talked about legal, we talked some across several different episodes of how to work with engineering. It might be something we want to come back to. But there's one department that really is super important, and that is because they are the people with the money. Tell us about finance. What does that look like in a large organization? And and what are the some sort of of some ways in which you as a policy expert need to be able to interact well with finance. Yeah, so so the finance team obviously is critical and actually actually echoes in government. In government you have all the the policy departments, health and education, all those fun things, but then Ultimately, the real power in government sits with the Treasury or the Finance Ministry. The people have the hold the purse strings, and companies, in a sense, are no different. There, there is ultimately, you know, the company can can only do things that it's got the money to do, and the people who decide whether or not there's enough money to do something are the finance team. So, there are probably sort of two aspects that we need to talk about. One is, look, as a team you are spending the company's money. So you can talk about you know, what's the best ways of spending the company's money to have most effect in, in the policy world. And then secondly, the finance team themselves have their own policy objectives. And so they will typically you know, want to engage around things, very arcane and technical things like, like accounting rules and tax treatment. And there, there are various things and, and working with investors, the, all, all, the, all the regulated space of being, particularly if you're a public company, being a public company. So we've got these two buckets. You know, how, how do we, the policy team, spend the money that the finance team gives us most effectively and, and how do we persuade them to give us enough money to to do our job properly and secondly how do we help the finance team themselves as an internal customer for the policy issues that they have yeah i i think it's really important to remember that both of those are in interplay because the the finance team is also typically the team that deals with the board for example of a company so if you're working with the finance team and you're working with um, people there, you might end up also preparing policy statements for the board, etc. So it's a really important and often neglected function within a large company. You sort of you know they have the money, but budgeting is always seen as a as a chore, not necessarily as something that can help you. But but really, I mean, let's let's try to put this into some kind of perspective. If you spend your money well as a policy team and you get roughly the money you want and you really spend it well and, and you do so in partnership with finance, how much more efficient can you be, you think, by just focusing on the way that you spend your money? Can you double your efficiency? What, what's, the, what's the sort of ballpark appreciation of that? Yeah, I mean, I think you can because, I mean, there's, there's two ways in which spending money can work out for you. One is that it, it, um, it effectively supercharges the effectiveness of the team you've got. You've got a small team of poly- policy professionals, and there are certain things they can spend money on that will help them to do their jobs more effectively. It's supercharged. But the other way is you can end up as a policy team effectively sort of managing external expenditure, which is not that useful for your policy objectives, but you've just become a bit like a sort of, you know, um, grant funding organization, almost an organization that's there managing money and managing expenditure. Uh, and it becomes quite a bureaucratic chore without delivering much value. So I think the way in which you spend your money is absolutely critical. And companies can have different philosophies. Some can be, you know, extraordinarily frugal. I used to work at a Cisco Systems before I went to work at Facebook, and Cisco was notoriously frugal. It was literally one of their company values that we're not going to waste money. Um, in, in the in the sort of I guess more Silicon Valley software-y, servicey type companies, they tend to be more relaxed, uh, as in the money's there. Um, but that means it's much more on you. <laughs> Uh, as a team to figure out how you want to spend it. You've got to have team values and you've got to make sure that you're being smart about it. Say spending money crucially where it increases your impact rather than itself becoming an additional job that you do without actually delivering much value. I think that's right. And I think one of the things that's interesting with with, uh, what you're saying on on Silicon Valley companies uh, generally is that I think it's true for the first way for the consumer, um, high margin companies. But I think the kinds of companies that are growing now in fintech and and different kinds of um, other uh, sectors, they are going to have much lower margins. So spending money well is going to be a key skill that will be highly appreciated in these companies, I suspect. Um, And... and, uh, Let's let's sort of start talking about really basic things like 
ownership of money. How how important is it that you have a budget as a policy team? When I started out many, many, many moons ago um, uh, at Google, for example, we didn't have a budget. And I remember the, the frantic anxiety-laden call that I had with someone who said, we have to get one of these, one of these budgets. Yeah. <laughs> and the money was sort of uh, available to us, but it wasn't, it wasn't in our budget. It wasn't owned by us. Yeah, that was a that was a sort of strange thing. I think you heard Google there in the background. <laughs> uh, Google, yes. Google heard you. Yes. 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 Speaking at you. So I think there are two reasons why it's important to have a budget. I mean, uh, and your own budget. One is is this sort of ability to be agile that you want. You know, the, the policy world moves very quickly, and if there are things that you can do that require spending a bit of money to do them then I think it's important you can get on and do them and that you're not having to to wait for other people to decide. But the second, perhaps the more fundamental one, is you, you need to be able to think about what the value of things are are to you. So, so I would actually sit down with a budget. The reason I want a budget is because I want to be able to say, look, I think that the policy work that we do in country X justifies spending this amount of money. And so to have sat down and said, like thought about it, so you don't end up, I mean, the, the risk, the downside to agility is you risk chasing the latest shiny thing uh, and then you're not structured enough. So by having a budget, you can both have the agility, but also crucially have said, look, country X is worth $50,000 this year. Country Y is worth $100,000 this year, because that's my my estimate, having done my work planning of how much money I'm going to need to spend there in order to do all the activities that I want to do. Theme Z. Uh, working on online child safety, that's worth half a million dollars this year because that's going to be a big deal and I want to spend money on that. Privacy is worth a million dollars this year and so on. And so I think just the exercise of having sat down, again, you're going to move this stuff around, you're not locked in, but having sat down at the beginning of the year and said, look, this is this is the shape of my work and this is the kind of budgets that I would need to support the shape of that kind of work to deliver the, everything that I expect to deliver. I think that's actually a really healthy and good exercise uh, to do that in the round. Yeah. And uh, so ownership of the budget is not just ownership of the budget. It's actually the availability of this enormously fine-grained tool to think about priorities, right? The yes. way you spend your money reflects your priorities. So so you can have a conversation with your entire team about the budget, and that will be, in a way, a uh, a, a sort of calibration exercise for everyone to understand uh, what is important now, how are we thinking about this, where do we think our investments will actually get the best return. And and, and that, that sort of turns the budget into a team communication exercise because you should be delegating some of the budget work to your team, shouldn't you? You should at least involve yes. them in it. Or how did you think about that? No, exactly. So you'd have that conversation and you'd, you'd say, look, this is the part and this is how I think we should be dividing it up. But you want to sit down with your team and say, and, and this is a, can be a hard conversation. Look, I'm only I'm going to spend 20000 on your country this year. I think we're going to spend 20000 And your colleague over there, we're going to spend 100000 on their country because they've got more impactful issues and there's more going on. And I actually want to have that conversation with those colleagues so that they're not all, I mean, as you, we've I think, talked about this before, one, that, one of the bad things that can happen in any team is that all the communications are vertical and none of them are horizontal. And so the last mm. thing you want is uh, somebody in you know one country, country A, coming to you complaining about their budget and saying, but what about what they've got in country B? And country B coming to you and going, why is country A trying to steal my budget? You need country A and country B in the same room with you and to have that conversation. Um, yeah. And again, actually, I think that's paralleled in government, where individual government departments all go to the Treasury asking for their money. At some point, you need that horizontal conversation where hopefully you all agree, yes, sometimes somebody's going to feel like a loser and somebody's going to feel like a winner. Um, but the reality is you've collectively made a prioritization decision that, and you share those priorities. And the person in the country with the lower budget you know, should feel that they own that decision just as much as the person who in, in the country that got higher budget, the person who feels like a winner. Yeah. And so let's talk about different kinds of distribution keys for money, because this is this is really interesting. It's also really interesting to check in on what other functions are doing, like marketing or sales or, or just figuring out, because there are a lot of different ways in which you can think principally about how you divide up money. So, so let's start with the, the most obvious one, the one that I ran into the most and I thought was sort of a kind of logic for some functions, but not necessarily for policy. And that's distributing your investments across a 
the market according to the overall sales volume of that market. So the size of the market in your revenue, which essentially is saying that I'm going to go to where I earn my money and that's where I'm going to spend my money as well. Is that a good or a bad model for policy, do you think? Um, I think it's generally a bad, <laughs> bad <laughs> model in the sense that, look, look you, you know, where where you have policy issues may not correspond to where you have your business revenue. Uh, and so that's the reality. And, and actually, if you, if you just take sort of the baseline example, I think it's actually where people and companies sometimes got in trouble. Look, look, the continent of Africa, uh, particularly sub-Saharan African countries, will generally produce very little revenue for online advertising companies, you know, the order of a few hundred thousand dollars. And yet they can have some very, very life-changing policy uh, issues that arise there. And so you do want to spend time engaging with the governments there. I mean, there can be literally you know, life and death issues when you're talking about uh, conflict scenarios. And so you can have countries with very, very little commercial revenue and very, very important policy issues that you want to engage around. You want to be at events there and you want to uh, spend budgets, allocate budgets so that you can work with local uh, community organizations, for example. So I think at, at the at the sort of gross level, just looking at revenue uh, is not the right weighting for your policy expenditure. H- having said that, um, in some cases, that there's a ca- kind of coincidence between uh, revenue and the the sort of size and footprint of your organization so 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 you will find that there are countries where because they're high revenue countries you have a large uh, physical establishment of your your company and physical establishment also requires some policy expenditure and a, a different kind of engagement you can't you can't have an office of a thousand people in a country and not engage a lot with the local uh, organizations even if there's no sort of you know, life-changing major policy issues there. So so there's a little bit of, there's something that reflects, I think, physical footprint, which sometimes tracks revenue. But but broadly speaking, revenue, I don't think is the right measure. It should be, look, how important are the policy issues? How much do they impact people? That's where I should be making my investment. Yes, and and I think it's it's one of those things where you, as a policy person or policy professional, you have to be really good at explaining what kinds of keys you're using to distribute the money and why. You might not be following the you know largest market gets the largest um, bag of money principle because there will be a pressure, I think, from other functions to go and say, why aren't aren't you you know why aren't we meeting all of the ministers in this country where we have such a large office, for example? And you might want to say because. This is a completely benign environment where if we did that, we wouldn't actually get so much out of it. But but you can you can also imagine uh, you can also imagine not looking just at the largest markets right now because that's a really uh, simplistic way of thinking about it. But looking at growth rates, so yes. you could say, okay, where are we growing the fastest? And you could use that as a key. Is that is that a slightly better way of thinking about it? I mean, growing can help because as you, as you grow, as we talked about lots of times, you are going to get more issues that land on the policy table. So while you're small in the country, uh, people are not that interested. As your as your business grows, but but actually, I think it's often many cases it's growth in user numbers, not necessarily revenue. So again, that's the Ooh. distinction. Perhaps is that look as as you grow users in a country, you start to become more integral to the social fabric of that country particularly if you're social media, but I think this equally would apply to things like search, where you start to become part of the economic fabric of the country. You know, businesses need uh, high ranking on your search platform to reach their customers. As that happens, as night follows day, there are going to be more instances where people feel hard done by and where they go to policymakers and they say, you've got to engage and you must do something, whatever it is about this, this online service that has been growing in the country. So I do think that usage... Uh, is is something which is a sort of proxy for uh, a, amount of policy issues that will get raised, and growing usage does mean more policy issues will get raised. It's helpful to do it in this structured way of sort of looking at different kinds of indices that you can use in your distribution key because it forces you to think about you, the principle behind spending so it doesn't just become handing out the money. And I think I think you're right. It's not just growth in revenues. It can also be growth in number of users. And there, even when you look at growth in revenues, there are two kinds of revenue growth that you need to be really uh, attentive to. I think the first kind is uh, where you have a, a growing share of a growing pie. 
and and you're not necessarily taking money away from somebody. The other is the zero sum scenario where there is you have a growing share of a for everyone else shrinking pie. Yes. <laughs> uh, that's much more likely to create the kind of friction where your policy problems will be generated as always, you know, mostly from your competitors and not necessarily from the governments in those countries. So the kind of growth is actually also really interesting to think about. Is it zero sum growth or is it plus some growth, because that will matter a lot to the kinds of problems you can foresee in that market. So, so let's let's sort of let's think about combining these. You could look at the size of the market, you could look at the growth, the kind of growth of the market, and and you can then start to use some weighted kind of uh, value for markets in that way to distribute. What will you not be capturing then? What's what will you be missing if that is what you do? I mean, the other the critical thing is like who's going to spend the money, and so so there is another factor we should look again. We should reflect a similar prioritization exercise. Like where have you got people who are engaged in policy? And and obviously, the more people you have engaged in a country, the the more likely it is that there are going to be projects they're going to want to support. And candidly, the the, the fact reality is you will have people who can run projects that cost money. So if your if your idea is that you're going to spend money on running an event, that only works where you've got people to run the event. Um, and so there will be this this sort of other uh, allocation, which is the budgets will track to a certain extent your staffing, your staffing hopefully tracks a similar prioritization exercise where you've looked at the different countries and worked out which are the ones where you're going to have the biggest range of policy issues, the most complex policy challenges. And are there countries where you would say, yes, all of this is right, but this country is more expensive than this country, all else considered? That, you know, you have to spend more in this country to get somewhere because that's the name of the game. That's what other other actors in this particular country uh, actually do. Yeah, I th- that's certainly true, and I think if we if we sort sort of start now digging into the kinds of expenditure that we might go for, there are certainly some countries where you know they have very well established trade associations that that can have a quasi formal relationship with government, actually be sort of known consultees for government, and and if you're not you know being part of uh, a policy community in that country means being in those associations and paying that money, whether whether you you know, choose to or not, that's what you're going to have to do. And, and Brussels would be an example of that, where there's a, a whole range of different associations. And and it's just part of the game of being present in Brussels is to be a member of those associations. And they are consulted. They have a, again, not statutory, but there's a sort of expectation they're engaged in things. Germany would be another country like that, again, where there's a number of associations that that you just have to be part of. So so there are countries that are, you know, where they have these kind of quite well-established ecosystems, uh, not just of the Silicon Valley type tech companies, but actually for the technology sector as a whole. And as you turn up and start getting active in those countries, there is an expectation that you would uh, spend money on it. Actually, Washington DC, another example. So I think these, uh, where there's you know a lot of bodies that are present in Washington DC, where it's just it would be weird not to be present and engaging in them. Uh, put it that way. And how contrarian should you be? Because one of the things that you can look at is not just sort of your own market, but you can look at where are my competitors or my peer companies spending money? And you can get a quick sense of where are they members of associations? Where do they put on costly events? Where do they publish reports? That kind of thing. And you can you can say, okay, so they are present in these different countries and that's where i will put my emphasis or you could do quite the opposite and say okay they're already in these markets i'll find other markets where i get more bang for my buck i'm thinking mm-hmm. let's take the example of europe because it's such an interesting and varied market so uh, one thing that i found generally and I, I don't know if you agree with this but i think there was like an under investment in the central eastern european countries uh, and a concentration to Germany and France, quite naturally, because Germany and France are sort of the core of of any European political uh, interaction. But but how how would you think about that? Go where everyone else is, or go where you are alone. So I, th- I think, and this has probably come up as a repeated theme in our our conversations around the business, the craft of doing public policy. There is a fine line between contrarian and arrogant. Uh, and, uh, and my yes. instinct is, in terms of the way people see you, my instinct of probably yours is to be quite contrarian. I, I hate running with the pack. I want to. I want to kind of do things a little differently. Um, and and I think that's a good instinct. But at the same time, if you 
poke your fingers in the eyes of the established entities, they will perceive you as arrogant. And uh, and so I think in many cases, it's a question of doing both. So you may decide, you know, I think, look, uh, if you do not have a significant presence in France and Germany in, in the European Union, then you, you're going to be missing a trick. You're, going to, you're not going to be part of, of some really important conversations. But to be present in France and Germany and say, look, I'm going to do a bit extra in Poland or a bit extra in the Baltic states, because as you say, there's, there's this sort of central and eastern European voice that's undervalued. Or there was a group in, in, in Europe called the D9, which was the Nordic countries, mm. Netherlands, Ireland, and so on. And I guess it's the D8 now the UK has left. I don't know, but there, there's a sort of, um, uh, you know, there are these other alternative groupings, the Visegrad group in Central and Eastern Europe. So I think you can do extra in those. And that, that may be the contrarian piece is to, to, to spend time in places other people aren't necessarily spending time. But don't do that by, don't, don't kind of go, look, I'm spending my time here and screw you, France and Germany. I'm not going to invest because, because you've <laughs> had it too, good for too long. That, that's where you sort of tipped over into arrogant. And, and again, there's maybe a sort of general theme there. There are, you know, events and there's, there's a whole sort of uh, establishment machinery of things you are supposed to do. And I'm sure you felt it as well. Sometimes you're frustrated. You go like, "Why am I doing this thing?" You know, there'll be there'll be sort of conferences and things that everybody has to be at, and you go, and it doesn't feel particularly valuable. And you're putting time in, and maybe you're being asked to sponsor it. But at a certain point, you have to say, "Look, I, I'm part of a sort of broader society. This is the way this community works." Yeah. And and I don't get to set the rules on my own. Google doesn't, you know, get to or Facebook don't get to write the rules for how policy conversations happen in different capitals around the, around Europe. Those those rules are set by the community collectively. Um, and I do think you need to play the game to a certain extent. Having said that, rather rather than sort of your frustration leading you to pulling out, your frustration should lead you to say, look, what what extra can I do? What are some additional things that are more my my style? I'm actually curious, what, Nick, is your view on the Google Zeitgeist events where you'd often on on the back or the side or around, you know, these sort of established uh, policy conversations. I know Google would often sponsor its own policy conversation sometimes on the side of something like an internet governance forum and 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 you could see I, that felt like an attempt to create the kind of thing we want to create at the same time as participating in the the old-fashioned formal thing but i'm curious how yeah, you think yeah, no, I think I think that was the, the one of the many intentions. I think another intention was just also to provide a, a more uh, a more dedicated forum for conversations around everything from sales to marketing to you know partners, finding those partners that you typically wouldn't be able to just get time with in the larger event. Uh, but yeah, I I do think that the idea was also to some extent to to find uh, voices that you normally might not have run into in those larger events. And I do think that's important. One way to think about it is to say, look, there's a cost to get a seat at a table. Um, in some countries, that cost is really high because of the establishment of uh, the, the limited seats at the table and the number of people actually already occupying them. And then there's the cost to get a vote at the table. And that's really going to be very different. In some countries, you're never going to get a vote at the table because it's, it's you know, they are going to prefer to have that vote be afforded to, to national interests or industries that are in country. And other countries will allow you to get a vote at the table because they're really interested in what you have to offer in terms of knowledge and growth and jobs and investments, et cetera, et cetera. So, so if you think about if you think about sort of your investments in how can I create the right environments, there, there are some seats at the table that you just have to have in order to be able to be, uh, do business at all. Uh, but then think about where do you where do you then wisely invest to also be able to negotiate at the table? And I think yeah. that's that's a different thing. And to me, one of the one of the things, and this is true for all kinds of resources like marketing campaigns or even exec visits, executive visits. Um, one of the things that, that you should do is to to do what you need in in all of the countries where you're present, but then figure out where you do you invest on the margin. And I think that's what we're that's what we're sort of circling around here, right? Yeah, exactly. And and there, I'd say my guiding principles just to remember that. Um, policy is a people business. It's about people getting together with other people to try and uh, discuss, wrestle out a solution that's in the public interest, and and you know that's what you're trying to do. And so, so thinking about places where you can invest money that bring people together to discuss 
an issue of interest to your business, but also to the broader public is is perhaps the, the, the principle I'd sort of set over all others. And that does mean, actually, to your point, Nick, it's about things like the zeitgeist. It's it's you know thinking about where there are there are people not present, uh, mm. so spending money on on enabling people who are not present to be present in a conversation. So sometimes there's quite a lot, and we should get get into this around around just travel and and physically yeah. getting people together. It's quite a big deal. Um, sponsoring events that bring together people who otherwise wouldn't get together for important conversation again event sponsorship we talked about before i i i hated the whole sort of gold platinum problems <laughs> whatever you know all this just give me some money for my event or actually you know the worst we talked about this is give me some money so you can speak at my event and i yeah. i just would always want those to be disconnected look if if your event is interesting enough for me to speak at and i'm relevant enough for you to want me to speak let's talk about speaking and then let's have a second separate conversations about whether or not you know your event is something that i should be sponsoring and the reason i would want to sponsor it is is back to this sort of primary consideration which is look are you going to bring together through your event people who otherwise wouldn't get together in order to have a an important conversation and if that's the case fine but if your event is just another you know thing on the traveling circus of endless tech policy events where it's not going to add any particular value then then I might want to come and speak at it because I'm happy to speak to the traveling circus but I'm not necessarily going to put the money in that doesn't feel like a a, a good use of company money so looking at, at uh, events and places that bring together people for important conversations so your first question should be like who's going to be there and what kind of conversations are they going to have uh, and that's the way you calibrate how much you want to invest in it. And there, there's an important point in what you're saying here that I think is is uh, often lost, and that is that what happens with, as you as you call it, the traveling circus, uh, is that the traveling circus converges on a few people who then uh, get to be the main voices in that traveling circus, and and they become the core of all of these different events, and they then set the conversation. One of the things that you can do, uh, one of the ways in which you can invest, is actually to increase the diversity of people in the traveling circus. Because if you do that, if you increase the diversity of voices, of participants, you will ensure that the discussion just doesn't get stuck in in a in a rut because that's otherwise likely to happen with just the same people getting together and saying the same things over and over again so increasing the diversity it can be simple things like you mentioned i think we did we both did this that we we would sponsor travel for people who normally couldn't travel to these events because they were students or they were researchers or they didn't have the means within their um, within their NGO to go traveling. But if they got to the table, the conversation got more interesting and varied. And that's that's something that that is is underestimated, I think. Absolutely. So there's the travel, and then there's there's the sponsoring of the NGOs themselves to build capacity, which. Which is contentious, and we'll really have. But again, that's another way in which you quite often are, are invited to spend money, and you and it can be very effective. So I, um, there were people when I first started working for Facebook, as then was, who were working in the online child safety space, who you could just tell were brilliant, you know, young people who who had had experience of online bullying and were trying to build up an NGO. And I would want to place money with them uh, just to enable them to build themselves up and create a voice as another NGO that would bring young people to these internet governance forums. They're the only people who would actually bring anyone who who was the kind of future user of the internet to the internet's governance forum. So giving them money for that, this all felt useful. This is all about building capacity, not because these people are going to love you or necessarily agree with you, but because they, they're voices that should be developed that, that need to be built up. Obviously, the flip side of that is that other people will look at that and go, well, you've taken big company money or the company's just trying to buy friends. Um, and that's something I think, again, in policy world, you have to ask yourself is if that's really what you're trying to do. Or are you just trying to buy friends? And I think if that's the case, it will generally backfire. Or are you trying to invest in people who are good? Uh, and by good, I, d I don't mean good for your company. I mean good for the sector who are going to bring a really interesting voice to, to an area like online child safety or counterterrorism or whatever it may be. And are, are you spending some of your money with them in order to build that capacity uh, in that area? And if you are, and hand on heart, you can say you're doing that. Again, I think that perhaps is one of the, the most, I, I guess, sort of publicly, socially 
beneficial things you can do with all these uh, ill-gotten gains that you managed to accrue from advertising, <laughs> whatever it is, and put some of that money, you know, back into people who are going to be strong voices. And and some of them, you know, will be there still 10, 15, 20 years time doing amazing work uh, because you were able to back them at the right time. And and I think that what most people don't realize is that it's a bet you're placing. It's a bet you're placing on uh, the long arc of the discussion you're in on whatever issue it may be, moving in a direction that you think is reasonable. And what you want to do is you want to accelerate that debate. You want to accelerate the discussion. You want to compound the amount of information and the amount of views that are being expressed. Because if that happens, you really truly believe that in the long run, you will end in a good place. But you do think that the way there might be very, really painful. And so you want to accelerate the discussion to get there. You don't necessarily believe that the long arc of the discussion is going somewhere where you don't want it to go and you want to stop it. Because hmm. that's buying friends, right? And that's yeah. not something that's going to be, it's not going to be helpful and it's not going to work. And it's, 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 it just, it's, it's just sort of a very overrated view of, of public policy to think that you're buying friends. What you're trying to do is to accelerate this discussion so you get to the point where you are somewhat confident that in the long run we'll end up in a good equilibrium. That's where the issue has to go because in the long run uh, there is not going to be, you know, there's going to be more technology, there's going to be more users of that technology and that technology is going to be putting more power into people's hands and if that's the case let's find out what that equilibrium is and have a diverse and really engaged debate on the way there. Yeah, and uh, and I think that's right. So it's, you're sort of funding the funding the moderates in the debate. I, th I think there's an interesting line that gets drawn as to when you're funding people who are actively critical of your organisation. I certainly had experience of that with some NGOs who would come to us, you know, very regularly saying, uh, "Give us more money, give us more money." Uh, but then, you know, they were constantly kind of harshly critical of the company in ways that sometimes we thought were, were unfair, sometimes fair, but sometimes unfair. I think that's actually an interesting, really interesting sort of conundrum to, to what extent. And uh, do you fund people who are going to be harsh critics of yours um, as opposed to funding funding those who are sort of in, in the sort of mainstream? Uh, as we said, just funding people who are just going to be yes people, eh, not particularly, I don't think that's particularly... Um, helpful and valuable uh funding i don't people think there are any cases of that having been proven to be valuable it's no. it's amazing to me that people think that this would work and it's often people who haven't worked in public policy who think that this works and but it, because it doesn't i mean i can't yeah. mention any example of of that being a useful or helpful strategy especially not in the longer term if you look yeah. over a 10-year period that never ever works even if companies sometimes resort to it yeah so I think I say prioritizing those who are going to genuinely add to the debate, who've got interesting new perspectives. And maybe, maybe that's, again, the rationale where I would certainly hold back from wanting to fund some of the critics, not, not because they were critical, but because I often felt that what they were doing was sort of fundraising for themselves on the back of criticism of us rather than advancing the debate. You know, the kind of knee jerk, you know, Facebook's evil and here's 10 reasons why they're evil. Send me some money kind of, kind of thing. You know, that didn't feel to me like it was necessarily advancing the debate as opposed to somebody who had, you know, reasoned criticism, uh, particularly, particularly, I think, when you'd already given them access to to sort of come in into the company and make their criticism in private, if their first instinct would be to to make public criticism and they say, give me some more money so I can criticize you in public because that that's sort of better for my profile and I'm not actually going to come and, and do the private criticism stuff and try and work things out so that, so that I end up not having to shout at you in public. That, that, yeah, I, I, that made me like think twice. <laughs> Why am I giving you the money for this? Uh, it doesn't feel like it's really advancing the debate. It feels more like it's advancing your building of your own profile and your own agenda. And I think it's interesting. I mean, there was never any shortage of sources uh, for the people who wanted to do that anyway. So it's not as yeah. if you took something away from them. It's just that they got, they got that money anyway uh, somewhere else and arguably became more efficient because they couldn't be uh, attacked on the basis of having taken your money. So maybe you should have given yeah. them money so that, the <laughs> yeah. so, so that people would have said, yeah, but you're, you're funded by Facebook. That's why you're criticizing Facebook. And then that, yeah. that would have been a whole weird dynamic. But weird, so let's weird. Have 
let's, let's let's step back, um, uh, which is just shows that we're never as devious as we probably should be. But there you go. <laughs> so uh, stepping back, then we we sort of we talked about budgets and we talked about distribution keys. And what we said was, you know, you start looking at these really basic distribution keys. Where do we make our money? Where do we see growth in users or revenues? Um, and then you start to sort of have to think about more complex things like where where is there actually return on this money in terms of of having a good debate, a good discussion? How should I think about that? Where can I where can I actually get through? Where can I have a conversation that will change someone's mind if they if I give them the right data, if I give them the right information? Where is that possible and where isn't it possible? And we were talking about, you know, there is sequential spending patterns that you have to respect. If, for example, you are in Europe, you have to figure out how to spend within the context of the European Union. You can't just divide it up into countries. You have to think about the European Union as one political um, as one political entity or unity of analysis, unit of analysis, and that that I think is 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 another important principle of budgeting. And all of this uh, is something that you also should do, really broadly aware that everybody else is doing the same. Everybody else is looking at this in the same way. It can be NGOs, it can be other companies, can be competitors, can be peer companies. Everybody else is looking at, you know, where where should we be? Where should we spend our resources? And they're doing the same thing. And you have to figure out, okay, how do where do I match? And where do I go elsewhere? So that's that's sort of what we've gotten to so far. And then we veered off into this discussion about what do you spend? That's the next level. And I think we we talked a little bit about thinking about how to spend the diverse how to spend resources and money on the diversity of conversations if you really want to and believe that you can make a bet on that conversation landing in a good equilibrium in the long term. And we talked a little bit about spending uh, spending money on uh, NGOs, building them up, and what that can do to them. What what are, what are some other things that you should have, line items you should have in a policy budget? Yeah, I mean, one thing that sort of keeps coming up is um, travel. Uh, and again, di- different companies organize it differently. Some some will allocate you a travel budget for your team and others it'll be a different line and, and you just keep drawing on it. So in my experience at Facebook was it tended to be the travel was sort of separate from the money that you would spend on things like sponsorships and and uh, uh, sort of organizations and trade associations and so on. And, and travel is quite interesting. I, I, again, I'll um, give a slightly hair-shirted sh- view of it. But uh, uh, I, well, a few sort of maxims. A friend of mine uh, always said, look, when you're planning travel, you should spend more hours on the ground in purposeful meetings than you do on the travel there and back, which I always try to stick to. It's kind of quite a nice maxim. And, and there's certainly mm. a temptation in tech companies that, Look, you know, uh, particularly where the budget is not particularly constrained, well, I can just jump on a plane every five minutes and go places. Now, apart from the environmental considerations, there's a couple of other considerations. One is just, you know, the cost to the company. And and we are, if you work for a tech company, you're all shareholders. And I, used, again, used to like to follow more the, the Cisco view of the world, which is, you should be spending the company's money like it's your own. And and so certain things, you know, I, I would never ever dream of catching a business class flight in Europe because it's nonsense. You're paying $300 for a bad meal, yeah. you know, like it's no, it's, it makes no sense at all. So, you know, things like that, like, of course it makes no sense. And even for long haul, I would often get the premium economy type stuff if that was more more cost effective. And I certainly look at the cost of flights and, and it's not like I have a right to fly business class, therefore I'm going to fly business class everywhere and that used to drive me kind of a little bit insane where people sort of acted like that there's there's various reasons why that's a bad thing one is you're wasting the company's money and the company's money is yours if you're if you're buying a more expensive flight than the one you need and the second perhaps more more subtle one is you're starting to cut yourself off from the experience of most of your customers most of your customers mm. are not people who fly business class everywhere and and there is something weird about the you know you're now in this world of people who are separate from the rest of the world. You, you've got the, you know, the big bosses in their private jets, and we think about them as this sort of separate class cut off from the rest of the world. Well, actually, the, you know, I always travel business class traveler because I work for a big, rich tech company, and they can afford that. And I always stay in the fanciest hotels for the most possible amount of money. I actually, they say it's a bit hair shirted, but I think there's something subtly corrosive about that and you should try and avoid it it doesn't mean you never take a business class flight you take them when it's practical if you're going all the way to california and you've got work to do of course there's a logical business case for for taking the more expensive flight so you're fresh and ready to 
to actually, I have to say, with California, I used to fly out uh, in the premium economy seats because I wasn't going to sleep, and then fly back in the business seat because I was going to sleep. So it's just like mm. thinking through, you know, what you're going to spend money on when you're traveling. I think is really it's just quite a good discipline for a team not to just acquire this sort of entitled sense of I'm jetting around the world in my own little pod. You know. And and there is a huge difference to when you actually book a flight as well. Yeah. So don't don't indulge in the sort of oh I'm going to go tomorrow I'll book the flight now. Try to plan your time because that's also a much better way to invest your time. They, I mean we're talking about the investment of money here, but the ultimate investment for any policy team is going to be in the time of its members, and that's yeah. that's where flights and travels really can kill you because there's a lot of dead time in travel. Yeah. And I think we discovered this during the pandemic. You have the you have the sort of the travel to the airport. You have the sitting around in the lounge where you can do email, sure, but it's it's not it's not sort of it's it's just not conducive to the kind of thinking that comes up with great good strategic ideas that change the game. And then you have the the travel on the airplane, and then you have the travel to the hotel, and then you have whatever you're doing, and then you're in CNN coma in the hotel room and <laughs> not in a dinner. And so it's like there th- that that amount of time need to be needs to be factored in because that's time where you could. Otherwise, I've been, you know, with your family, recharging, coming up with good ideas for the next day. And there's there's just a, a different quality of the kind of thinking you get in the knowledge worker uh, if they're traveling or if they're not traveling, I think. But that might be me because I'm I am I'm uh, <laughs> I'm a bit of a travel skeptic. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm completely with you. And I think I ended up in the last few years uh, with Silicon Valley Company only going over once, maybe twice a year maximum because just that sheer drain. And then you and then you pack things in. And the thing that would drive me nuts a little is when somebody suggested, look, I'm going to fly to California for a one hour meeting. Uh, yeah, and, you know, and then if it's a one-hour meeting, just go in via video conferencing. Don't don't actually go there. Um, if you're going to spend two or three days with people over there and get real quality time with them, then go. But whatever you do, don't fly for a one-hour meeting. And again, we have to surface it. One of the reasons why that would happen is, look, somebody who's one of your policy clients would be going over there to meet the big bosses. And yeah. the reason you want to be there is that I don't want to miss out of the meeting when I'm with the big bosses. And I get that. Uh, and, and they have to sort of say that as somebody who has sort of spent more time with the big bosses, I can get why somebody perhaps more junior in the team would want that opportunity. But again, if you're going to do it, then then actually think ahead and, and have a two, three, four day program that you're going to spend over yeah. there. Yeah. Don't don't go in just so that you can be in the corner of the room when when this person meets the big boss because that's probably not a super efficient use of your time or anybody's time. Uh, but I, I would say this though that one of the things that I think is really important was to have the junior people do exactly that. Go over with uh, if the minister was coming to Silicon Valley, go over be in the room because if you've been the contact with this person and they see you in the room the entire conversation can then continue with that person if they've been in the room but you can't just go over for the visit what you do then is that you either set a series of internal meetings you continue your your ongoing education in what this company is which is something you should always have on your schedule whatever company you're working for because companies are are truly to be researched and studied as the weird complex mechanisms and organisms they are and then if you can, actually make a point out of also having some external meetings. Because one of the things that would bug me was travel for only internal meetings, except yeah. for off-sites. I thought that was also one of the things where it's it's a it's a wasted opportunity if you go to continue to talk to people who are within inside of the walls of the company. If you go, however, to, to get new impressions and talk to people who are outside and you have a, a pretty robust program, then I can understand the logic of it. I think Nicholas, you're exactly right. Yes, yeah, so it is that it's it's being planful. Maybe that's the thing: being planful, thinking. Uh, you know, how how many times am I going to be going to the headquarters during the year? How do I make the most of them? And the optimal visit is one that combines somebody who's one of your clients coming into town with uh, uh, a bunch of really valuable internal meetings and a bunch of valuable external meetings over three days. Say that's the that's the sort of optimal thing. The, the thing you want to avoid is the last minute. Oh, my God, you know, somebody's going next week. I'm going to drop everything. I'm going to cancel my week's work, get on a plane. Uh, but because I haven't really had time to plan it properly, I'm going to go in for the one-hour meeting, and then I'm going to get on the plane and come back again. And that's, yeah. that's something to be avoided. 
Yeah, and, and the thing about that also is that that you have to be careful because sometimes that's seen as engagement or yes. as as sort of being really in the work that you're sort of dropping everything and you're traveling at a whim and and it's it it has to do with this sense you have of work culture. If your work culture is such that that if you do disruptive things and you drop everything and you run for something and the urgencies dictate what is important at the moment, then then you're going to end up in that bad pattern of of I think largely needless travel, but if you build a work culture where your your premium is on you know the planned event, on the planned travel, and on consciously spending your time on the important rather than the urgent, then it's going to be really different. But that's that's it's sort of a it's it's kind of a activity over impact thinking mm. uh, that you sometimes see. I'm doing things. I'm taking a plane tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. like, yes. But if you had thought about this like three weeks ago, you wouldn't have to be doing things because then uh, this thing wouldn't have happened. So there's, yeah. there's something there about never ever allowing for urgency over impact to be the way in which your performance is measured. And ultimately it comes down to a lot of the spending questions actually have to do a little bit also with how we view performance and how we view, how we view a, a sort of a, a good day's work and what that is. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, and again, just as, uh, as we're talking to people who are in similar professions through this podcast to an extent just a health warning here like travel is bad for your health yeah. and i say as somebody who who is uh, you know i'm i'm spending my time now catching up and trying to fix my body after spending too too long sort of running around and we, and you can't avoid it like people go no it's a bit like you know i i can smoke a lot and it won't affect me well it will <laughs> and uh, it traveling will. a lot it disrupts your sleep it disrupts your eating patterns most of the food you eat is rubbish i mean nutritionally rubbish when you're traveling so everything about travel <laughs> is bad you, you're you're eating those huge hotel breakfasts and and you you're out for dinner every night like so remember that uh it'll catch up with you it may feel like fun but it'll catch up with you in the end so that's just a little little health warning to colleagues uh try not to try not to uh end up in the trap of of endless travel that then costs you you know significantly in terms of damage to your body and and where possible ask you know are you really the pe- person who needs to to travel or or is it possible to find someone who would actually learn the most i mean and that's one of the questions that i liked that is that is not not who is the best on the team to do this but he's who on the team would learn the most from doing this mm. um, so when you prioritize different kinds of events or you prioritize travel across your team it's it's easy to say i'll go because you, you you think that <laughs> you sort of overrate yourself. You think I'll get this done, um, and then it's easy to go like, "Who's who's who's the best for this?" And you go to the person who does all of the other work, and you <laughs> you you mess their health up. But if you go to the question, "Who would learn the most from doing this?" It's actually a really good question generally when delegating work. Who would learn the most from doing this? Uh, you'll have a much more, um, I think, healthy team over time, and you will grow the team more equally and evenly over time. And I think that's that's another thing to think about when it comes to travel as an investment, because in a sense, you're making an investment when you travel in your team. Either yeah. you're making all of those investments in yourself, which doesn't seem to be a very nice thing to do, or you're figuring out, okay, how do I, if I think it's really worthwhile doing it, how do I delegate that across the team? I think that's a so, really good point. And you can end up yeah, with a, a sort of balance, like who, who hasn't been to headquarters lately? Uh, yeah. It makes sense. And if they're perfectly good to do the job and somebody's been several times, then the person who's been less would be the illogical choice. And also, I mean, to be brutally honest about it, you give them a little bit of visibility, which makes it easier for them then to continue growing because Perfect. people will have seen them and know who they are. And that's that's another. Yeah. So now the fact of really large organizations that visibility also factors a little bit into the career patterns that you see evolve. Hmm. Um, hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, the, the other thing I think we should talk about when we're talking about the sort of travel and visits and things like that, because um, just come to mind, there's the health warning on your physical health. There's also the health warning on your risk of criminal liability and general uh, ethical behavior, which is the Foreign and Corrupt Practices Act. That's the American. Ah, yes. Whenever you are traveling or entertaining, we should give that health warning. And if people are not familiar enough with it, once you, in the bigger companies, we have some regular training. Uh, for smaller companies, it may not be so top of mind or people working at smaller companies. But there's just a basic principle, which is whenever you're 
you're engaging with people in positions of policy influence. That's not just the policymakers themselves, but it's you know, officials and things like that. Um, and you're particularly, it sort of comes up a lot around travel. It's not exclusively around that, but travel and entertainment. Are you, you know, uh, uh, happy to be publicly accountable for what you're doing with them? And are you entirely confident that you're not spending time and money on them, uh, or money in particular on them, because you want to kind of sway them inappropriately? That's the general principle. Yeah. There's lots of detail behind that. Um, but people should always have that, like, front and center, you know. It, uh, and again, the, there are different rules in different countries. You should be uh, mindful and respectful of their rules. The British Parliament actually is um, that, that you can receive hospitality up to the price of a good lunch. And that's not regarded, I mean, that's this rough guidance. That's not regarded as corrupt, but something like, you know, if you went and visited a company and they gave you um, uh, tickets to some major sporting event or something like that, that that was actually worth a lot of money or gave you gifts that were worth a lot of money, then you start getting into problematic territory. So we should always just say, when you're spending money, uh, whether or not you're an American company that's strictly bound by the Foreign and Corrupt Practices Act, just as a matter of good ethics and good practice, I think the test is, you know, at, at, for you and the person you're engaging with, are you happy for there to be full public scrutiny of the money that's been spent? And, and you know, is there anything that's sort of embarrassing or that you yourself would, would question about that expenditure? Yes, and this is good to do before you spend the money, by the way. Yes, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Yes, yeah. So, so here's, here's, here's uh, sort of wrapping this into our larger budget discussion. Yeah. We've talked about how to spend the budget, how to think structurally about it, and make sure that you really make the effort to sort of sit down and think, what, is the, what, what are the principles I'm applying to this particular problem? Because I think that's really helpful for you to think together with the team about what's important. It's a prioritization tool. It's not just um, a yearly exercise that's Hoisted up on you. It's it's some it's an opportunity to discuss in very concrete terms what you're doing where and why you think that's a good thing. Because when you do this, ultimately your budget should be aligned with your general planning. It should be aligned with your general goals and your objectives for the entire public policy uh, plan that you have for the coming year. Which means that the budget becomes a focal point or a lens through which you can see the rest of your work. And and, and once that's done, you start to do the checks. And one of the checks and one of the first checks. Is as Richard correctly points out, needs to be, you know, is there any spending here that I feel that I'd like to go have a chat with compliance about? If you're in a larger company, you're going to have a, a compliance uh, team in there, then they're great. Asking them once too many times is 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 really what they'd prefer. So you just go off and chat with them. Is you know, does all of this look okay to you? Um, and that's just make sure you're, you're not stepping on any uh, landmines. And then the second thing, though, that happens after this is that you should be following up um, your budget, budget uh, periodically just to check where you are and check, you know, what is what is actually happening here. I, I don't believe in quarterly budget follow-ups for policy teams. I don't know about you, Richard, but I do believe in having at least a yearly check on how did we actually spend our money. How would you do, go about that? Yeah, I think the, the annual check makes makes sense. And I um, so we we were really in in the sort of next budgeting round. You go back and look at what you did with the previous budgeting round. So, so the day to day management actually is in conversation to, just in your regular one on ones with team members. So if you you know you've allocated X thousand dollars to this particular country, then your one on one regular conversation with the country manager, you'd say, look. Uh, how's it going? Uh, 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 you know, have you, uh, do you need more, or uh, have, haven't you spent it? If not, why not? So you're you're still having those regular oh, conversations. We, we should just to sort of briefly break that particular part out and double click on it. I think one of the things that's really interesting is that you should keep some discretionary budget because you know that there's going to be needs that you can't predict, right? How much, how much, roughly, what percentage would you keep in a discretionary fund? So I have to uh, confess, I I would keep a separate cent central spending pots. I was running a region. I had Europe, Middle East, and Africa, and said so allocate some out to each of the different countries. And then I would have a separate sort of budget line, <laughs> which was which was for my discretionary spend. And it would be, uh, it, it might be like sort of 5% of the total would be allocated back to me as a line that I could then use. So if I did talk to country manager and they said, look, I spent the money, uh, we did some really good work with it, and now here's some other good work I could do. Then I would be able to say to them, "Here's some extra. There is some extra funds in the pot if you, if you need that." So I would always keep some back, allocating down to the last cent, 
it was difficult. The other thing I did, I don't know about you, I did it as I allocated in buckets. So it'd be much more, look, I think for your country, you need this year 20,000 on child safety stuff and 30,000 on privacy stuff and 15,000 on on business development type stuff and whatever it was. And actually, they would also then have quite a lot of discretion to move between those budgets themselves. So mm. you're, you're sort of looking at something, you're giving a, a rounded off headline figure they the first level of discretion they can say is you know privacy has not been such a big issue but child safety has so i'm moving from my privacy budget to my child safety fine go ahead and do that and then the second level would be okay i've spent all of the budgets <laughs> they've all gone can i have some <laughs> back from your central contingency and then i'd have you know five percent or so roughly of the regional budget would be sitting there in a budget line that i could spend out there so yeah, I agree with that, and I think that's that's roughly what I did too. And I actually even even more, in a more delegated fashion, than that say here's here's a chunk of uh, here's a chunk of the budget that I think uh, I'm going to allocate to you. How would you allocate that if that was the chunk you got? And and then you would ask the the mandatory question you now: if you got ten percent less, what would you cut? If you got ten yes. percent more, what would you add? Which is, is sort of a margin check, just figuring out where is the where is the hard pieces of the budget and where are the more soft, fluffy pieces. It's a it's a good way again just to force that discussion. Where where do you think you have your must dos and where do you have your nice to haves? Um, and so so I think that's that's probably the the way that I would do that too. But what about the yearly follow up? Would you yeah. sort of go back to people and what what in what order would you sort of look at a say you're getting the budget from Germany and you getting the year actuals? What's the first thing you look for? Uh, I mean I mean again I'm looking to see if if why if if there is variance why there's variance i mean that's the key question so if they've spent more uh, i should i should know why they spent more because i would have had that in the one to one conversations uh, more typically the the uncertainty is if they spent less and that's the point at which somebody might sort of confess well you know we were trying to do these things but i just haven't got the capacity or the headcount and then then the budget and the headcount conversation go together so the question then becomes was it important to do those things uh, if you failed to do them because you've not had the the people to run the programs that you thought you were going to run, does that mean next year we need to maintain the budget and give you headcount? Or was it that those things ceased to be as important as they were, in which case next year we'll just pare back the budget, you know, because it doesn't make sense to roll the budget over if it's not going to be spent. So it becomes part of the, there's a sort of annual, certainly I had an annual headcount and budget planning exercise that went together. Could you convert them? From one to the other, could you say I'll take a little bit less budget, but I want a little bit more headcount? Did you we, have that? We didn't actually. That was again some companies. Companies are very different, but we our headcount um, budget, as it were, was on based on numbers of heads, and there was an exercise to to sort of argue for numbers of heads, and then the 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 budget budget, the cash budget, was a separate conversation. I know. I think uh, uh, um, some of the other companies sort of you get a pot of money, and your your salary has come out of that pot of money. So that's a different way of accounting for it. But, uh, but I, I certainly my understanding for the, for the Facebook point of view was that because the headline number that they were giving to the markets was number of heads hired, they kept these things very separate. A number of heads actually would be a harder negotiation than cash in many cases, you know, because yeah. we, we can give you cash and then we can take it back next year. Um, but a headcount is for life, not just for Christmas, was kind of the, the philosophy. So they, were, <laughs> they were much more um, careful about giving you heads. But I say that was often the two were related in that the reason that some money hadn't been spent is that there weren't the there wasn't the staff to run the program we'd originally envisaged. Um, and that's where you had to be honest. Either we're going to hire those staff and keep the budget or we're going to, you know, if that's not going to happen, then, then we may as well return the budget. I mean, one thing that I... Um, I've always said I used to work in the National Health Service. My first job and the National Health Service had an annual uh, uh, sort of march. To, uh, the, the financial year ended in April. And in February, March, I worked in the IT team and we would get this like, oh, go and buy loads of computers because we're going to yeah. understand our budget and we won't get an next. <laughs> that I just think is ridiculous. I thought it was ridiculous then. I think it's ridiculous now. Nobody should ever encourage people to spend money on useless stuff in order only to maintain a budget for the following year. And a grown-up organization will say, you underspent this year, fine. You know, we'll have the money back, lovely. Um, uh, you know, what is your realistic plan about whether you're going to spend it next year? And if you keep telling me you're going to spend more and you never spend it, then then I'm going to punish you. 
and actually I'll punish you in your management review because you know you'll you'll get a lower bonus because you'll get told off for the fact that you continually badly budgeted you're not a good manager um but but the the way to do it is not to create a perverse incentive for people to go out and blow all the money in the last month or so you know uh, they should be able to have an honest conversation and say I underspent this is why I underspent this is what I'm doing to fix it and next year uh, you won't expect to see the same underspend on the same budget line uh, but but I'm not just going to go and blow the money now in order to avoid that difficult conversation. Yeah, and, and on that note, I also think it's important to start uh, from a zero budget perspective, not look at last year when you're budgeting next year, but ask what do I want to do and why do I need the money for it? It's easy to to do the carbon copy version and say I need next year what I had this year plus 10%, which is sort of, um, I think, a very bad way of using the budget. Then it becomes just a financial exercise. You should do zero budgeting. You should start from zero and say, okay, here's what I want to do. Here's how much I think it will cost. And then look over if you've missed anything uh, from last year, if there's an important membership from a trade association that you for some reason missed. And then be really honest with yourself. Why did you miss that when you thought about what you would be spending this year? Mm. Did you not get the value out of it? Did you not sort of use it well enough what what made you miss it because if you missed it um and you uh, and you can't come up with a good reason why then probably it shouldn't be in next year's budget so zero budgeting is actually a really good intellectual discipline to apply as well i think oh that's a really good point yeah it's that those budget lines you look at them you go what that what's that for and then <laughs> nobody in the team can remember what it's for that was probably but nobody wants to take it out <laughs> nobody <laughs> wants to take it out because they're like yeah. i'm sure we needed it for something it's like yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I but, agree with you. The the spending on budget in order to keep your budget that's that's a it, it's a very weird organizational disease that that should be should be avoided because what it what it leads to is essentially also bursts of spending that that are rarely uh, followed up on or uh, explored more closely. So yeah. I, I do think I do think that's that's a really really good point, and I think. So how do you then look at the quality of the spending? Because they say that you're looking at this team and they spent to, you know, they spent within 5% to where they said they would be. I prefer them to be a little bit over rather than a bit under, but, you know, okay. they're there. And then you, then you ask yourself, was this money meant well spent? What is it you're looking for? Yeah, I th- again, I think you have to have really honest conversations within the teams. So you review, say you spent money on an event or money on a trade association, uh, you need to dig into that and often be triggered in those one-to-ones. So you, you're talking to somebody in the team, they're going, oh, I've spent this huge amount of time on this trade association and they're they're not delivering, blah, blah, blah. That's the point at which you need to say, should we continue to be members of that trade association? Like, are we getting value for money? Or you've just had an event and you should say to people, well, did that work? Did, did, it, did it generate the kind of conversation we, we wanted? And within that, you need a no blame culture uh, because yeah. you are taking risk. You need to say to your team member, look, you, you spent $20,000 on that event. If you went to it and it turned out to be a damp squib, it, like it was nothing, you need to be able to say to me, yeah, I spent the $20,000. I thought it was going to be good, but it wasn't. So we won't run it next year. And the worst yeah. case is when they go, oh, God, I spent this money. My boss is going to be angry. So I have to say yeah. it was brilliant. And then next year, we're going to spend 40000 on it. <laughs> on the same thing. <laughs> and it's going to be worse. Yes. And that's so yeah. important. I mean, it, it, you have to look at the budget and you have to tell people, if, if not at least 20% of the spend was a failure, then you're not thinking expansively enough. You're not taking risks enough. Uh, because if, if everything was just dandy, then at that point, I'll just force you to stack rank your spend to say, OK, what was the most valuable? Where did you get most return on investment and where did you get least? And that's actually doing it. I hate stack ranking for people because I think it fundamentally misunderstands talent. Talent is not individual. It's networked. It's the yeah. team that actually gives you your talent and you're working together with others. So stack ranking people is a noxious, horrible practice that I could never condone. But Stack ranking spending, however, I'm quite fine with because I think if you do that, if you force sort of a stack ranking and preferably from team members without talking to each other, you can have a very interesting discussion. That's right. Yeah, it's only like yeah, trade associations. So you're, you're members of 10 trade associations. Say to people, like, okay, if you could only be in one, which one couldn't you live without? And then, yeah. okay, if you're allowed two and so on, exactly, I agree with you. Entirely. And it's just a nice way of forcing that conversation. But I think the, the, the primary lesson I would say is, you know, when you when you're talking about trying to understand value for money, talk about it at the time that the spending occurred, 
not mm. not don't wait till the end of the year. So again, as we talked earlier about travel, if somebody's gone off and flown off somewhere, uh, and and they've come back, and the next week you say, well, how was it? Again, encourage they don't have to talk it up. They don't have to go as brilliant. It's okay to say, on reflection, <laughs> I wasted four days of my life and ten thousand pounds yes. worth of company money when somebody else could have done the job just as well. And I sat in the room. Time well spent, money yeah. well spent, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and, and you should expect, conversation. Yeah. And, and there should be an expectation on you as a team member and team lead uh, to, 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 to occasionally spend time and money badly. Um, yeah. Because that everything else would be deeply unnatural. If you're sort of spending all of your time brilliantly and all of your money efficiently, then, then, then you should probably be... I mean, commended, of course, but you should also probably be written up as a fictional creature because that doesn't happen. That never happens. And, and so again, again, a... Yeah, but perhaps coming back to that one message, which is like spending the company's money like it's your own. Yeah. When you spend your own money on something and it turns out not to be very good, you, 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 you're brutally honest, typically with yourself, and go, God damn it, I'm really annoyed. I spent the money on the thing yes. that was bad. You don't double down and spend more on it, and you don't feel you have to defend it. Uh, uh, you know, you you you're honest generally and say I, that was a mistake. I'm going to learn from it, and next time I'm not going to spend the money on that thing or with that supplier. Um, so again, that 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 sort of having that mentality with company money that's coming out of your own pocket, I think, takes you a very long way to to getting good value for money. Yes. Well, this has been this has been an unexpectedly rich discussion. I think we, yes. we're both uh, obviously budget nerds. We there's much more to say about the finance department than working with the finance department, but we might get back to that in the later episode. Um, uh, knowing that that if we continue, we'll have a full other hour of discussions about investor relations and Ooh. public policy goals of financial departments. And while I think you and I would stomach it, it might be cruel and unusual for our listeners uh, <laughs> who can <laughs> who can. Find Find our, you can find this podcast uh, on your website, which is at www.regulate.tech. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to have you tune in with the next episode. <laughs>